Hey everyone, welcome to this uh, Sunday night isolation footy talks. Uh, Luke Wildman, KJ, uh, Stephen Caldwell. I, I, I haven't seen a bigger fall from grace as last week at the Maracanã <laughs> and now stuck at Hamden Park. You must have done something awfully wrong last week to, uh, to have that fate, Stevie. Phenomenal stadium, mate. Look at the background there. I've seen, seen some games this stadium, KJ. You're in quarantine. You had to go home. Exactly. Back to Hamden. Home. There's no bigger home than Hamden Park, Glasgow. And we lost, uh, we lost Sir Alex Ferguson this week as the producer of the show. So we've got Miguel Herrera, former Mexico boss, now Club America, as, uh, as the person in charge of the show. So it, it could go quickly off the rails at any moment, given his history. <laughs> yeah, but we might be in trouble with him policing the show this week. He was he was the one that after the Gold Cup a couple of years ago got fired from Mexico when he tried to punch the TV analyst. I wonder if there's any coaches that want to punch the TSN TV analyst anytime on uh, TFC games or anything like that, Stevie. Definitely. T- t- punch that touchline reporter for some of the questions that he asked <laughs> post game. Well, Wildman's already tried to get me in a fight with a bunch of Canadian players this week with the licks we did at TSN. I don't know if you saw that troublemaker already at it. Never saw it. What happened? Uh, you know, advertising a TSN soccer special where I have to do a top 10 Canadian players and he's already rubbing his hands knowing that I'm going to wind up a bunch of people. <laughs> it's, coming on, it's coming on Thursday on TSN 2 at 7.30 Eastern time. KJ picks his top 10 Canadian men's players. Pulling oh, out all the stops, hey, the major channels, Luke. So, uh, on, on Thursday night, uh, KJ's, KJ, I, I think really number one, Stevie, is pretty much self-explanatory, right? I mean, KJ yeah. can't give anything away, but like, you know, I'm come on. I'm not allowed to say anything. It'll be a brave man to go away for Alfonso Davies, but we'll see, we'll see, Luke. Young Jonathan David's done some good stuff in Belgium. He is. He is. Just wait till he picks Zachary Brogiard, though, as his number one. <laughs> That'll be a surprise. But that's coming up Thursday on TSN. There's also an Alfonso Davies special coming up, KJ, as well, soon as well, which uh, we're filming this week. Yeah, looking forward to it. We're going to do a few specials. And uh, as you said, you know, the more controversy, the better, for your point of view, because you could just sit back and watch it all come in, right, Luke? Listen, yesterday afternoon, I was just flicking through the TV channels, and on TSN, they were re-showing... The opening game of the 2014 season. It was. A bloody big deal. Uh, Jermaine Defoe scores uh, two for TFC on his debut. And the, I wasn't surprised by that, obviously, because I'd seen it and called it in the first place. But I was surprised about how youthful Stevie looked. <laughs> how thin. You, you, it, was like, it was like two decades ago. You looked like a teenager. I was in good shape then, guys. I really was. I was I was flying fit at that point. Yeah. Fall from grace, KJ. That's What's what happens that? when you Six join years. the media, mate, and you know, you got to <laughs> Yankee Stadium buffets and stuff. Absolutely. If uh, if you got any questions uh, tonight, just uh, send them in the QA. Um Kai Connell wants to know a uh, good evening, lads. He says, How much Belarusian footy did you all digest this weekend? Not a lot. <laughs> I'm sure KJ watched all the games. I didn't, but I did see flicking through the channel last night that there was there was highlights on TSN at ESPN Sports Center of the Belarus League. Yeah, Are you really? Serious? Yeah. Wow. Honestly, yeah, highlights on 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 Sports Center. Yeah. Oh, that's impressive. Um, the um, the thing about that uh, that game that uh, was on yesterday, that Seattle game, um, apart from Stevie, was just 
looking back on that TFC team. That's, can you remember the team, Stevie, to start the game? Yeah, we did this recently, didn't we? It was um, it was Julio Cesar in goals. It was uh, Mark Bloom, Stephen Caldwell, Daniil Henry, and Justin Morrow. It was uh, Jackson, Bradley, Azorio, and Alvaro Ray. And then it was Dero and Jermaine Defoe up front. Yeah, um, and that was that was a season where they showed some signs of promise through yeah. the season, and then it all sort of came to a halt, didn't it? Yeah, it's sad to say, but the first game was actually the the highest point of the season, you know. And and we had some other good moments, but just the anticipation ahead in that game with with Bradley and Defoe joining, Dero coming back, and and some of the additions that we had brought in, obviously Morrow's first season, um, we, we were very optimistic that it could be extremely successful. And then we get the first game, we're away to Seattle, always a tough place to go. And, uh, you know, the, the US broadcast picked it up and it was the early game. And, you know, it was, there was a lot of hype around it, a lot of build up to that match. And we went there and, and we put in a brilliant performance, you know, a, a sort of performance that's not, it wasn't really seen by TFC at the time or hadn't been, been seen by them in the whole history. So um, it was a big game. It was a big day. We, we had a superstar who could put the ball in the back of the net. We had a midfielder who could challenge the best of them, go box to box. He was sensational that day, Bradley. It was, I still say it's the best game I've ever seen him play, maybe because I was out there lucky enough to be out there in the park, but he was unbelievable. Um, and, and obviously we had a bit of grit and determination to see at the victory in the end, but Unfortunately, it just kind of went. I think we believed that we had to play a different style, KJ, than than what was suited to us at that time. We were good when we were we were tight, we were hard to beat. We could always get a goal. We felt like because of the additions we had made, uh, right. that we had to be a bit more open and and outgoing and, and play more possession based football. And it didn't actually suit the players that we had at that time. And so, as the season progressed and we tried to become more expansive, it affected us in a negative way. Yeah, interesting. I mean, obviously, you know that a lot more than I'll ever know. I mean, I was on the sidelines that day. I didn't see the game yesterday on TSN, but just for my own reflections, I remember just this overwhelming feeling of having seen the team from day one and thinking that was so unique. Yeah, it was like, yeah. what, season, season eight? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, you know, I know they'd had some high points prior to that, but they'd never, ever had that player, like you said, like Defoe. And there was no thought at that time that this guy was going to go home. There was it was only positive. It was like, oh well, they've got Jermaine Defoe. I was like, this guy might score thirty-five goals. <laughs> like, yeah. it was that good. This is a guy who still wanted to play for England in the World Cup. Like, little did we know that you know, two or three months later, the the, the wheels would literally fall off the, the bus, so to speak, yeah. and everything would be done. But I remember that. I remember Julio Cesar that game too. It's a story I always talk about. But the saves, a couple of saves he made, I think one. No, Obafemi Martin's playing that game. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah, save on him in the second half. We just comes out. It made it look so comfortable. I remember yeah. thinking this guy's a different level as well. So that that was the one time that Obafemi Martin's got out of Stevie's pocket all game. <laughs> hey, yeah, it was. We we had a good first half. We were defending well, but we we obviously scored the goals, and and then the second half was like the Alamo at times. They were coming at us. Mm. And waves, I think I had a really good block from Martins when it looked like it was a certain goal and I just kind of chose the right side, blocked it over the crossbar and then KJ says Julio made a great save um, and, and it was Bradley Orr came on, kind of strengthened up the back line a little bit and um, 
and we got the victory. And you know, the game was sort of 1 p.m. Pacific Coast time, so you know, we finished the game, we were hyper, we had something to eat, we went for a few beers as a team and, and really bonded. And you know, I, I, I had vivid memories of just like you know, the, the sort of celebration and the kind of enjoyment of what was coming, you know, and, and so the anticlimax of what actually came was a bit disappointing, but I always think everything's for a reason and it set that foundation, it set a tone, it suddenly, TFC in that one game, KJ, tell me if I'm wrong, but they, they went from being the kind of laughing stock of the league to being, okay, oh, yeah. these guys might actually do something with some of the guys that they've got out there in the field now. Oh, definitely. You know, and I don't bring this up as a negative, but I remember Carl Kelly writing a piece that they were favourites to an MLS Cup right after that game. And it was like straight away, like, you go to Seattle and you play that way and you've got Defoe and you've got Bradley playing that way. You know, yeah. Captain Marvelous Caldwell and centre back, you know, <laughs> it was the spine was there. And, you know, obviously it didn't work out that way. And the season is long in Major League Soccer. But look, as you said, some lessons needed to be learned. I think during that run to, I think that, Bezbachenko really needed to learn lessons too because it, it wasn't just about getting the best players. It was about getting the best players who could play with each other. Um, you know, when did Gilberto join? Not long after, right? I think. Yeah, I th he, may, may even, he may even have been signed in KG, but I right. know he wasn't involved in that game. So I don't know if it was something to do with the papers or whatever, but he was, he was coming. He was certainly imminent at that point. Yeah, and that, Remember was big, the, uh... that was a big signing, but he could never play with Defoe. It no. never, ever worked. And so it was, it was only when they started to really construct people uh, together who could play together that they had any, any kind of chance. So yeah. what, we, what was that, Luke? I was saying, was, was it Gilberto and Defoe when they were pushing each other off the ball for the free kick at New York? Or was that yeah, Gilberto and somebody else? It was unbelievable. It was Gilberto and Defoe. They were at New York. This was around about... June time, it were absolutely sensational that game as well. Actually, it was before maybe the World Cup break, and uh, we, we ended up drawing 2 2. But we really we played red, we passed Red Bulls off the park that night. That was us trying to be more possession, but we had a great game. And I see the two of them, they're over the ball. I'm standing way back at the halfway line, of course, but I'm, I'm right behind it, KJ. And I see the two of them fighting, and I'm like, right, somebody step away. And it went on and on for you know 15 20 seconds. I'm like, I'm effing furious at the back I'm thinking this just looks pathetic like somebody step away <laughs> and I'm going to come up and, and you know and, and sort it out and I, and I see it's Gilberto hitting it I'm like this guy honestly I was, I was like what's going to happen here and I had the best vantage point in the whole stadium maybe Defoe was the only guy that had a better one but Gilberto walks up to this thing and he hits it like I've never seen a ball hit before it was just so pure and perfect it was pretty straight at Luis Robles but there was no way he could get to it. It crashed off the net. What a moment. And, uh, you know, over to the sidelines, I run over. We, I, I never used to celebrate goals, guys, because I was too tired to run up the park and enough to run back. I used to stay back and get ready for the onslaught that was usually going to come. But this time I had to celebrate. We went, we, we jumped on each other with the subs and the coaches. And another great moment in TFC history. Uh, well, uh, in your, probably, in your his, probably his biggest moment, actually. Gilberto, yeah. yeah. In your career, Stevie, is there, a, is there a, something that stands out with um, teammates fighting? There must be another, there must be a few incidents, at, at least one or two you can actually mention. Yeah, Kevin and I did a little piece on this, actually. We called it Footy Fights. We're going to release it at some point, but we had a good chat about Footy Fights. And, and of course, the one that always comes to mind is, is Boyer and Dyer, Lee Boyer and Kian Dyer at St. James's Park. And I wasn't there, I just left. 
maybe about eight, six, eight months before. So, but I remember coming in after the game and guys are saying, Boy and Dyer for the fight, they both got red cards. And at the time, we, as professionals, we weren't even sure that that resulted in a red card. It was still, you know, violent conduct and it was two reds for the, the same teammates. And so anyway, we were desperate for match of the day to watch that one. But my favourite one was I was playing at the DW Stadium in Wigan. We were playing Bolton. And my partner that day uh, was, um, I was playing for Wigan. And my partner was Antolin Alcaraz, a Paraguayan centre-half that we signed. Very good player. Went on to Everton. Actually got uh, hindered with injuries, but he was, a, he was a super player. But he was lax. He would step into things, KG, and come out of areas. He I wasn't remember. that kind of centre-half. He wasn't a guy that kind of stayed in the line. Martinez took him to Everton, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He was yeah. aggressive. He was aggressive with the way he played. So anyway, he steps out of something and, and uh, you know, the ball goes in. They nearly score and they miss it, fortunately for us. And I start screaming at him, look, like, you know, the hairdryer, I'm giving him it. And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to take it. And I've said something that he's just took real offence to. I don't know what it is. To this day, I'm swearing and stuff, but I know I was certainly not aiming it at him. It was just for the team. And he comes up to me, we're head to head, and he gives me a little headbutt on the field. Now, our good friend Howard Webb's a referee. Oh, yes. <laughs> So Howard comes over and I'm like, this is after Boyer and Dyer. This is like 2010, 2011. And I'm like, oh, we're off here. I've done nothing, but I'm thinking we're off or he's off, you know? And so I'm trying to defuse it. I'm saying, oh, it's cool, Howard. And Howard's just, you know, kind of defuse the situation. And I just bite my lip. But we're coming after the game. We draw 2-2. I come in after the game and I'm walking up to him and I'm like, if you ever, I'm giving him it and pointing the finger. And he starts running at me, and I'm like, oh, here we go. So we're running towards each other. There's seven or eight guys in the middle pulling us apart. We're scrapping in the changing room to get each other because whatever, the, the cultures were completely different. And we made up. It was just one of the things. But that was almost a footy fight out there in the field, and it certainly was one in the changing room at the DW Stadium. Do you think it still happens as much these days? Uh, no, I think that I tweeted something the other day. It was it was Batty and Nicky, but I saw that it was great. David Batty, was, what a legend, eh? Well, the Batty tackle was disgrace, like red card, <laughs> and Batty gets up and he's angry about it, and you know that they're, they're literally scrapping, pushing each other, but not just the little push that you see these days. They're at each other, and uh, and the ref, I think it was Paul Durkin, whoever it was, came over, relax, calm down, guys. I think they both got a book in, but it was certain reds but that football was like that then there was more confrontation the personalities were bigger and things were forgotten quicker and I don't think they are so much these days maybe in football maybe in life but I'm sure there's still some scraps in the UK look and I certainly think there is at the the lower levels there has to be because it's that confrontation and that kind of um, accountability that really allows you to be a successful team we, we had it at Sunderland, we'll get to some stories now a wee bit later, but we had it at Sunderland where there was there was literally a scrap every single half time. Like two guys, <laughs> not, not punching each other, but, you know, sort of pushing and, and having to, people come to get in the way because it could end up being a scrap because we wanted to win so much that we just drive each other on with, with kind of that accountability. It was, it was amazing. See, there's a new um, a season two of the Sunderland Netflix documentary coming out soon. Coming soon. Can't wait to see it. 
comes at the start of April in uh, in the UK. I don't know about out here, but uh, hopefully it's it's going to be out here as well because that was fantastic. Yeah, it was some documentary, wasn't it? I want to see more of them. I'm watching the one on Brazil now, KG, on Amazon Prime. Oh, really? It's the uh, lead up to the Copa America. You'll love it. I'll need to. Uh, you'll need yeah, to go need that. that one. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, that'd be great. And obviously, yeah. the Tottenham one's supposed to be coming out on Amazon yeah. Prime too. Right. This season, with obviously they've had enough things going on this season, they kind of picked a perfect year for Spurs with Pochettino and Mourinho and everything else. So that'll be these producers just seem to know, don't they? Oh. <laughs> when to be there, when they see the stories. Yeah, uh, I got a couple of questions to get to. Uh, Sean asks, How difficult will it be to do transfers with big name players like Neymar, Kane, or other rumors that are out there? Uh, likely could be a short window and lots of teams without any money right now. Um, I mean, that's all got to be sorted. I saw somewhere today that they might not even have a window this summer or they might roll contracts over or have a long window from July to January. I mean, some clubs are going to need money quickly and to sell players. Other clubs, it's going to be difficult with contracts and stuff like that. Um, I don't suppose till the leagues come back, they can work anything out really, KJ? No, I suppose not. Although, I mean, for teams in terms of players out of contract, it's going to be very difficult for them to have any pay, any power over players. Players ultimately, uh, you know, if the contract's expired at the end of the, at the end of the term, the contract is expired. It's not based on when the games are playing. It's based on the date of the calendar. So that leads to trickery as well. Obviously not the big ones in terms of the questions he's asked, but there are, I think, about 67, 68 players in the Premier League alone who have contracts expire at the end of June. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I mean, it's just a separate side issue. I just can't see how we're going to have games before then. So um, even if the games don't start by then, those players, could they be signed by other teams at that point? I don't think it'd be, I, I think it'd be very difficult to say they couldn't be ultimately by European Union, the laws. So we'll have to see how that goes. And, and then we may have a situation where, which is not uncommon to the past, where players are playing for different clubs at the end of uh, finishing the season off when they're playing for somebody else before. But as I said, we're all old enough to remember that used to happen regularly before, but uh, just, I mean, there's just so much uncertainty, Stevie, right now in terms of we don't even know when the games are starting. There's reports today in the Independent that they might try and start them in June based in neutral venues and put these players in quarantine World Cup environments where they're not touching anybody else to just get them done uh, for like a broadcast environment where they can just play them in front of no fans. But look, all right now is just, all it is is just a bunch of paper and pencils and it's certainly not hard ink and cemented ideas at the moment you just can't be can it no it can't be and it's just too much speculation about what might happen we, we just don't know we just have to ride this out like we're all trying to do you know listening to our, our separate governments and, and what the guidelines are we, we just don't know we can't tell but I think that's an interesting point you said look with the, the legal side of things you know legally if a player's contract's up, it's up. You know, it's, it's not a case here. Well, he's got six, seven games a season to go. His contracts are, you know, it's got a date in it. And the date is, you know, the end of June or the beginning of June. Usually you, you get a month if you can't find a team. But, um, but if, if you're a player through all this, Stevie, and it's it's your contract coming up at the end of June, surely you um, you say, okay, if, it's, if, we're, if there's a plan and they're going to the end of July or they're going to the middle of August, because of the unique situation, you just allow your contract to... Add an extra six weeks, don't you? Yeah, I would like to see that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Ideally, that's what would happen. But guys are going to think about, you know, you, you have to think about. And I, I'm going back to me as a player, and you know, I was fortunate to play at a high level. But 
I was always looking for that next contract. If my contract was coming up, I was never like, I wasn't on 60 grand a week or anything like that. And, and just kind of like money's a bit less relevant than what it is for, for some of these guys. And I ain't even talking about, fortunately, I was never in the lower leagues. I'm guys that are really like needing the paychecks to, to live and survive, you know, but if you're looking for that deal and you're on the verge of getting that kind of bumper deal at 27, 28, or you're trying to drag on another two years in good money. And, you know, you have to think about your, your financial future, your families. It's, you, you sort of, unfortunately, it sounds cynical, but you don't really care about what games are left to be played. You're worried about yourself and, and how you can secure the, the lifestyle that you're living at for the next two or three years. And so, like I said, legally, um, I'm playing for uh, Leeds, and I'm pulling at clubs, uh, you know, at the heart here. But and, and and Palace want me, and they're they're going to double my wage. I'm pushing hard to to make that happen on June the first, when it when it technically would have happened, because I'm just worried about my future and what that means. So I don't know if they can bring in a separate rule legal thing that that would would pass, and that these guys just have to accept it, or if it's just going to be a free for all, because that would be. I'm worried about that, KJ, that free-for-all where guys are just thinking about their own futures and, and moving before the season's finished. I think that would be pretty disastrous. It wouldn't be easy, but as I said earlier, I just think that's probably what's going to happen. I don't yeah. know. I just think at the end of the day, like you said, look, if, if, you're a, a periphery, if you're a peripheral player who plays for Bournemouth and you're occasionally getting minutes and your contract's coming up and you're not sure if you're going to be in the Premier League next year and a team who you know is going to be in the Premier League says, well, look, we've got a three-year deal for you right now. You want to come? Bournemouth may well say, well, can you stick around for six weeks? But you might like, no, sorry, I'm gone. Like, yeah. you know, loyalty is only there for a little bit. You've got to look after yourself. And if you know that they're going to bin you anyway, if you get relegated to the championship, then your player's got to look after the player. And that's the way it's always been. I expect it to be the same. But yeah. like I said, we're, it's all just, it's all just, up in the air at the moment anyway, yeah. isn't it? Um, a question from KJ's notebook. Uh, somebody obviously very observant sees KJ's notebooks all lined up there along the, uh, all those impressive black, how many, and I see you got one on the desk, how many have you got behind you there in total? How many, uh, how many KJ's just, notebooks are there? That's just one shelf actually, but I brought this one because he was talking about Wigan and I thought it was the same year. This is 2012-13 Premier League. So I thought it was that, that year. That's why I pulled it out, but, it, he wasn't obviously talking about that. Yeah, but, other than that, yeah. yeah this is, so this is like the Premier League when I've got all the minutes of all the players who played. Like Gaz is in here, Gary Colwell, if you can see that. But like yeah. you get all the players, the minutes played and everything like that. Uh, Antolin Alcaraz is there right there with Wigan. And uh, they drew with Villa on the last day of the season. Boyce, just Emerson Boyce scored. So stuff like that. But to answer your question, probably... I don't know. There's probably like 18, 17, 18 there. Usually one for every year for Premier League season, major tournaments, Serie A when I covered that, all the World Cups, uh, stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, there was a question there as well, wasn't there? What was the question? In your opinions, who is the most underappreciated Toronto FC player? Hmm. Underappreciated. Ooh, good question. Hey, you're um, making Stephen think. Whoever it is that's uh, KJ's notebook, you're making Stevie think. Underappreciated TFC player. I think Jonathan Azorio is pretty underappreciated yeah, for what he's that. playing right now. I think Justin Morrow is always very underappreciated in the league. But mate, I mean, MLS doesn't pick fullbacks when they pick their MLS best eleven, so he's never got a chance to get in that anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think two of those players come to mind right away, Stevie. 
Yeah, I would have to say Morrow. Um, a guy who's just so consistent. He's been there since 14. Uh, that was probably his debut for TFC, that, that game in Seattle. And it was. I just think he's... When we look around the league, we see the left-backs... Um, Within the league, I think he's one of the best. I think it has been for five seasons, six seasons. Um, who else? Well, Greg Greg Vanny would presumably say Marky Delgado. Uh, well, he plays him every week, so he's not that yeah. under. does he? But yeah, I get it. He's, he's no, un- but by everybody else. By everybody uh, else, he pro Unsung, isn't he? He's a bit an unsung guy where, you know, he doesn't get the plod. It's because he doesn't score the goals or, or do the flamboyant things, but he does the kind of hard yards and... And he's pretty consistent, to be fair to him. He's still pretty young, so there's, there's hopefully for him some improvement to come and he could be could be one of the best midfielders in, in MLS if he keeps improving. But um, I th- I'm thinking of a guy who who consistently kind of puts up numbers, KJ, that, that never really got the plaudits, but I don't know if there is one. Yeah, like I said, those two come to mind for me. You know, I'm not necessarily leaning on the Delgado thing. For me, I think he is who he is. And I think those who watch him every week and fans of him know what he is. And, you know, I, I just think for me, Azorio has, has escalated to another level, particularly over the last couple of seasons. And as, as I said in our chat this week in our top 10, without giving away what number he is, for me, he is everything and more you want in a Canadian professional footballer these days. He is the epitome of what you want to see and how the professional environment, what we've seen since the birth of Toronto FC has come has allowed the birth of a player to develop that way. And that's what you want in a professional environment. You want players to come in, excel, play regular minutes, and have the league excel around you that pushes his level up as well. And that's, for me, what he does. And look, his athleticism is off the charts. He's extremely fit, as Stevie and I have talked so many times, which allows them to win the midfield battle so many times because the midfield teams who play against him, Bradley and Delgado, fade often late in games. Um, and those three have won the game a lot for TFC, particularly down the stretch. But I just think, as I said on the on the TV this week, for me, he, he, he just passes that emotional intelligence test that so often you want when you're looking for any employee to play to, to represent you in any business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, is aware of his own strengths and weaknesses, um, is aware of other people's strengths and weaknesses. He's kind of got a little bit more of a of a cerebral look at the game that he's matured so much as well. And that's just me as an outsider. I don't know Jonathan too well. I do know him a little bit, covering him, obviously watching every game. Uh, but Stevie, you've worked with him hands down a lot closer than I have, and you can probably speak to it a lot closer with the fact that you've got a connection with the Canadian national team as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what you've said there is all absolutely accurate, KJ, but I, I just want to tell the, the listeners and you guys, like, tactically, he is absolutely exceptional. He's up there with anybody in MLS, a lot of people that I've worked with throughout the years, even in the UK, he just gets it and he gets it quickly. And so when we're asking for different things with the national team, I'm sure Greg Vanny would, would say the same things if he was on here now. He gets it so quickly and he's always in the right space. So he has a, a an unselfishness to his play that he will keep that tactical structure that you're looking for as long as possible and do the right things for the team. And that is an outstanding professional. That's someone who is a, an out-and-out team player. And there's moments where I think it's to the detriment of his own personal performance because he won't go hunting the ball like some guys because he, he's so in tune with the tactics and he, and he knows what's needed to create space for other people. Um, and so, 
to me is is a, when you when you go through that and you think about what people you know normally see within the ninety minutes of a game, either watching us on TSN or 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 at the game live at, at Beamer Field, it's hard to kind of notice that unless you're you're really looking at it. Azorio is exceptional at it, guys. He's 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 one of the best I've worked with. He's extremely fit, always KJ. You know, we had the January camp. Liam Fraser and Jonathan Azorio, they're running every single day in training. These guys are like doing pitch runs after training. They're, they're so fit. They're just on another level. And, and that fitness allows them to do what he wants to do. I think it's allowed them to develop as a player. And he's matured as the years have went on. I think he was a bit impetuous when he was younger. I agree. And I played with him. And me and him used to have some clashes then. And, you know, he, he, he wanted to win and he wanted to do well. He just was struggling a little bit to kind of harness it in the right direction then. But he certainly does that now. And um, a brilliant guy, a top professional. I think there's, I actually think there's more to come with Zorro. I think he'll keep getting a little bit better every year for the next three or four or five anyway. Well, George sent a question in as we were talking about Jonathan Azorio and said, should he have gone to Europe rather than sign a big money deal with TFC? Or should he, more likely for him, it would have maybe been somewhere in South America. Uh, yeah. If he wasn't going to stay in Major League Soccer or Mexico, Mexico was a big top, wasn't it? it was, well, a few uh, inquiries, Liga MX teams were led to believe, and we thought that, that that's where he might go. But um, I mean, yes, maybe he, he 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 should have, or he thought about challenging himself in another league. Uh, you know, I can see why people think that, but. It's not a be-all and end-all either as well, Europe. You know, like we're, we've got a league growing in MLS that I think is really successful. I think it's getting even better. I think he's playing with his hometown club. He's, he's pretty consistently in the, the starting 11. He's winning trophies, you know. To go and play and um, surmising what team he would go to, but, you know, let's say he goes and plays in the Dutch league, the Eredivisie or... So, like, how is that better than MLS? You know, what, why does that justify that you're a, a more important player or the English Championship or lower Premier League? I, I think he's in a good place, KJ, is what I'm trying to say. I think he's he's happy where he is. And I wouldn't rule out him still leaving at some point in his, his career to come. But at the moment, I think he's pretty happy where he is. I agree. You know, eventually when he was, you go back and you look at the time when he was given that money, you know, I, there's nobody else in the world would have paid him that money at the time. No. So, you know, and it was your hometown club. And that's the key. It's your hometown club. And he'd done South America as a teenager, spent a lot of time with him this winter, and him and Lucas Cavalier talking about their journey. And we're going to do a feature about that on TSN, the two of them together, actually, when they're in Uruguay as teenagers, some great stories. But I think he'd, he'd done it. He'd kind of broken away a little bit, come back home, and then... He, you know, he wanted a chance to continue to prove. There was a lot of things he felt that he needed to continue to prove to that organization, to that city, to that fan base. To Stevie's point that even though he got that deal and he came off a career year, he felt like he was nowhere near done. And he carried on and he's given, been given that chance. I do think that whenever a young Canadian player, most of the time I would advocate to go if they get an opportunity. Mark Anthony Kay, for example, I think right now, if he gets an opportunity after a full season in MLS to go play in Holland, Belgium, then go, go try it for a year. Why not? Um, I just think that would be a great opportunity for him to, you know, let him go and, and, and express himself in a different environment to get better. Uh, but I just think the Azorio profile of the whole thing was very different at the time. 
Uh, we'll get to a question in a little while from uh, Irving, so stay with us. Um, it relates to something that, KJ, we spoke to John Herdman about this week with regards to CONCACAF and qualifying moving forward um, because of everything that's happened now and the delay in terms of what they do with the HEX and all that for the next World Cup. Um, but we've got a guest joining us now. I'm delighted to say that uh, Carl Robinson is here. Uh, Newcastle Jets head coach is on the line. Hi, Robbo. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Not too bad. Where are you right now? Are you still out in Australia or have you, you returned to Canada? No, I'm back in uh, Canada now. I flew back on Thursday after the, the league had been uh, suspended. There you go. He's oh, on nice. The He's on the Newcastle beach. Hey, it, it, Stevie, Stevie couldn't find the Millennium Stadium, which is why he put Hamden there in the background. I was, I was trying to work out what stadium that was. It looks like a rugby stadium, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, it's not, is it Millennium Stadium still, or do they call it something different now? The Principality. Nice. Uh, earlier on in the show, uh, Stevie was talking about players that fell out with each other, teammates, and he had a couple of stories about teammates falling out. Did you ever want to, to get into it with him when you played together? Oh, every day in training. <laughs> he, um, yeah, he, he talked about games where there was arguments in, in games, but let me tell you this, there was arguments in training every day, and it needed to be done because, you know, some players were being a little bit lazy, lackadaisical, and and they needed to kick up the backside. They needed, we couldn't, you know, turn it on and off every day or whatever to prepare for a game on Saturday or Wednesday. So the, the, the so-called leaders of the team, and Stevie thought he was a leader, and I thought <laughs> we used to lead together but argue together. So it was good. I've got a good story, Robbo. You remember this one. Remember when Big Mick, our manager, Mick McCarthy, joined in in training that one time? And, you know, oh. this tells you what kind of level of competitiveness was in our training. And, the corner comes in, didn't it? And Big Mick goes in and he comes out of this collision with like a big gash in his head. Remember, it was pouring down his face. He cut he his know, head. He didn't know what was going on, did he? He got up and thought he'd scored. He was like this and he said, you haven't scored. And he turned around and it was all dripping. And, and then that, I think that was the only time you were scared to talk to him. <laughs> his nose was sort of, yeah, not at the best of times anyway, but it looked even worse then. But he encouraged it, didn't he? He, he loved the confrontation. He, he encouraged it and he created this unbelievable spirit because there was nowhere to hide in that team. And I think uh, it was a very honest group of players. And I, I love my experience here. Train the way you play. If you train that way with that intensity and that desire, then when it comes to a game on a weekend or in midweek, you're able to... Uh, it's it's in your mind. It's repetition. Uh, and they say practice is the best, uh, you know, for perfect for, for when you play in these key moments, these high-pressure situations. So, you know, that's something I've took from me wherever I've gone. As a manager now, though, Robbo, does that, if you see that happening with your players, how do you deal with that? What? With them uh, stepping off the gas or them arguing? Arguing with each other. Listen, it happens a lot. Let me tell you this, and pe people don't hear about it nowadays because obviously we try, we try and keep it tight-lipped tight, tight -lipped and inside the locker room. And I, I'm a big advocate. What happens in the locker room stays in the locker room without a doubt because if you let everything out or anything out, then you know there's, it, it never ends in a good way. But it does happen a lot. Uh, usually I get involved. Uh, I let them say their piece because I think it's important. Modern-day player has a voice. Uh, they all think they're right players. And, you know, that's strange. <laughs> 
um, but you've got to actually find the root of the problem. Uh, and it might be that you have to deal with it on Monday or Tuesday. It might be at, that you just have to nip it in the bud. Um, but, uh, you know, if you don't deal with it there and then, it just lingers and it never ends well later on down the line. So you have to deal with it straight away. Rob, while we've got you here, obviously we talked about the Belarusian Premier League earlier on. I'm not going to ask you about that, don't worry. Uh, but that was, they are one of the leagues still playing. But as of this week, just gone, your league was still playing. In fact, you were still managing as of Monday night this past week in Australia. They finally, the A-League suspended their league, much like most leagues around the world. But you uh, played, you actually managed Monday night against Melbourne uh, for your team, Newcastle Jets, in a 2-1 win before it all ended and you were able to come back. But how was your experience there? And I'm not talking about past tense because it continues to go, but how much did you enjoy your time in Australia so far? Yeah, great. It really was. It's different. Uh, you know, I wanted something different. I wanted to challenge myself. I waited out 14 months, as you all know, you know, but in that 14 months, I did a lot of learning and, you know, I went to see managers in Europe all over the place, even in Major League Soccer, you know, and I just wanted to... When you're a footballer and you move clubs, you move clubs for one or two reasons, and Stevie will tell you this, either for the financial gain or you move to play somewhere where you think you're going to enjoy it more. And that's where I was as a manager. And I had to decide after being you know, a manager at my last club for five odd years that I wanted to go in with the same desire, enjoyment and enthusiasm as what I had five years prior. Um, so I didn't rush into it. And when I went down to Australia, obviously the people are great. The accents are very funny, as we know. You know, so you can't talk about that. But, um, you know, speaking to the people, they were good people. And I just wanted to put that on my CV and say, well, he's managed to do something different and be successful because at the end of the day, you can take a job wherever, but you're judged on wins and losses. You know, you can only fool people for so long, but results at the end of the day speak for themselves. So I knew that it was a big project. Uh, I'm seven, seven games in. I'm obviously the unfortunate stoppage then but it was it was crucial that it probably was stopped because what's going on in the world is, is the more important thing at the moment and trying to deal with that so you mentioned seven games robo and uh i think you were four wins two draws one defeat you were 12 points off the playoffs when you started now you're three points off what did you focus on when you first went there was there was a one specific thing or what was the key for you to go into a new group that was that was obviously maybe faltering a little bit at that time yeah, you know, it's, uh, and that's what you have to do as a manager. You go in and, and the easiest thing to do, and in, in the 14 months I had off, I spoke to a lot of managers about how they approach going into the next job. You know, when they go in, whether it's start the season, mid-season, you know, during the season and things like that. And, and the key thing, what they said to me was, if you try and rip it all up and try and make too many changes, you'll fail. Because... You have to do that over a course of 18 months or two years. So I went in with the mindset of it's a clean slate for everyone. The players that have been playing have got to continue to try and fight for their place. The, the guys on the outside were had equal opportunity to the guys on the inside. So I, I, my first meeting was brilliant. I said, listen, guys, I don't know any of you other than what I've, what I've heard about you. I've watched the last seven, eight games. I said, so I'm going to make my own mind up. So you'll decide whether you play. And literally, I made no changes to the team because they actually were doing okay without winning. Obviously, we won our first game, we went on to uh, draw then the next two, and, and then followed it up with two more victories. So you only change it if it needs to be changed. They, they've got a good group there. There's a great bunch of boys. Their mentality is spot on. Um, so there's no need to change it too much. Having said that, do I want to change it? Yes. Will I change it? Yes. But I'll do it at the right time. So 
it's unfortunate the season obviously has been postponed at, at this current moment. But I had a chuckle because the, the one game I did lose, I lost to Robbie Fowler in Brisbane. Uh, <laughs> I lose to the one English coach that's over there as well. How's he doing, Robbie Fowler, out there right now? Well, he's enjoying it. I know that. He's playing a lot. <laughs> now, Rob, Robbie's doing great. He's, he's obviously got Brisbane, who, who finished towards the bottom of the table last year, towards the playoffs. And they're in, they're in a good place prior to the season being postponed. But it was great. It was great, obviously, putting my wits against him. And, and again, it was a typical football game. Of It was really interesting because I spoke to him afterwards. We lost the game 1-0. They scored in, in the first 10 minutes. Um, and then from then on, we totally dominated the game, but we didn't score. And he said afterwards, it's not about what you do between both boxes, Robbo. It's about what you do in both boxes. And it's coming from someone who scored a multitude of goals at the top level. That's the way it works. And you can talk about possession and how much control you have on the game. But unless you put the ball in the back of the net, it's irrelevant. So uh, that comes from Robbie Fowler. Robbo, I've got to ask you about something in your last game. So in your last game, you beat Melbourne City 2-1. Uh, I believe you have some kind of legend or A-League legend or goalkeeper who was coming to the end of his career, I think. And he, and he was looking to maybe get his last appearance. And then you put him on in the 86th minute. Is that something that you, you decided before the game you were going to do? You had to wait, wait on outcome. And was it down to the relationship with him and his players? What, what, when you're a manager in a game that still counts at that point, uh, when is it time for some sentiment then? Well, that's, that's the big question. And to be honest, I'll, I'll be totally open. You know, I was getting pushed and pushed in relation to, he was on 249 games and he'd made his decision at the start of the year to retire, to go into coaching. He's going to go and coach another A-League team. So he'd made his decision pretty early, but he lost his place. And when I'd come in, obviously the, the, the other goalkeeper stepped in, uh, Luis Italiano. He's done really well. So I didn't want to change it because he's the, he's the future of the club. Uh, but as the season went on and the games ticked down, he, you know, the goalkeeping coach was reminding me that he's still on 249. I said, yeah, yeah, it's a win games. Um, and then it got to obviously Monday night. Uh, you know, you develop relationships as a manager, you know, and oh, the truth always comes out in the end. Everyone tells me that he's a good person and the dealings I had with him for six weeks were absolutely spot on. You can't kid a kidder, as they say, you know, you are who you are. And I said, generally, he's a really good person. Didn't complain, didn't ask why he's not playing. Uh, but through sources, it was known to me that he played on 249. That was on 249 games. Coming into that game, I wanted to win against Melbourne City. He was second in the league. And I knew that it was going to be a very tough game with 2-1 up. You know, but I did say to Kenny Miller, who, who's my assistant, you have to make me aware with four or five minutes to go. Because if the season stops and yes, it's postponed, but doesn't play out the rest of the season, I'll never forgive myself for someone who's so close to a milestone in that in his career. Uh, so I'd made my mind up early. I'd done it. Uh, and people, you know, looked at me, the rest of the subs looked at me as if I had three heads. <laughs> uh, but I put him on uh, and it's a gesture that goes a long way because if you're good to people in football, people are good to you. Um, when probably when you need it more, you know, when you're flying and everything's great, it's easy, you know, no one, you, you think you're invincible. It's when you're down at the bottom or you're out of work or you haven't got a club or you're not playing well or you're not winning games. You know, you go to people who you trust and respect and things like that. So I've done it because you're generally a good person and it was the right thing to do. And we won. So it was the right decision. God knows <laughs> if I would have conceded. I saw a few weeks ago, um, I, I enjoyed the, uh, the thing Fox Sports did where you were mic'd up on the touchline. That was, uh, that was pretty ballsy. 
Yeah, for me, as you know, guys. <laughs> you know what I'm like with the media. It's, you know, I, I think there's certain things that, you know, you can be open with and certain things that obviously have to stay within the locker room. But they asked me about it, the Fox guys. It's a, it's a small world because Simon, the, the guy at Fox, who used to follow me in my Wolves days back in 1996, 97, 98, he works in Australia. And, you know, I'm, I'm building relationships over there. I said, yeah, I'll do anything for you. No worries. So then he asked me for it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I ended up doing it. Um, and again, what, you, what you've got to be aware of is when managers get mic'd up or managers get put on camera, they'll show you and tell you what they want to tell you and want to show you. Their true personality doesn't really come out unless, you know, they put their guard down because there is a lot of stuff that probably doesn't get shown or doesn't get told. So I said to him, I'll do it. Obviously, there's things you might have to be about and things like that because of the way I, where I am as a manager. And it went down very well and he was very appreciative of him. And when I spoke to the other managers in the, in the league, Stevie Karika and Tony Popovich, who obviously I know very well, they said, Robert, we don't do that thing over here. So obviously I've done it the first day, second game I was in charge or whatever, and no one else does it. So I was obviously <laughs> saying, sorry, guys, I'll, I'll have to repair that with me and you later. <laughs> hey, you were saying before, Robbo, about the, why you choose clubs, but it seems as if you choose them if there's a beach as well. Because, I mean, you had however many years in Vancouver, and now I've, I've, I've never been there, but I've seen the pictures. It looks a, a nice spot. That's amazing. It really is a nice spot. It's my son in the background on his, on his surfboard, on his, I don't know, boogie board or whatever they call it. <laughs> I was laughing. It's the first time he went. He's a Welsh boy who's lived in Canada all his life. He goes out in the waves, absolutely twisted him up. He went head first into the sand, comes up with sand in his mouth. I'm thinking, you've got a long way to be an Aussie son. <laughs> <laughs> you waiting on me asking a question, Luke? Well, I don't know if you or KJ got something before we let Robbo go. He's got to get back to... I mean, you must have been on... Have you been on the surfboard as well? You know, I haven't yet. I'll, uh, I'll do it when there's no one around. You know, I'll, I thought you, I thought you meant Steve, I thought you met me and Stevie there for a second. Like, I'm not going there. <laughs> oh, Caldwell on the surfboard? There's no way Robinson can surf. I'll tell you that right I now. I'll guarantee you. will be right in the sand. I will surf. Give me a year and I will surf. It's about as much chance of you getting over the halfway line when you play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff right, alright Robbo thanks a lot for joining us thanks guys cheers mate see you good to see you, see you. Uh, great to see uh, Robbo back in the game after his time in Vancouver and now um, it, it's weird though it's, it's weird because you go through these phases of looking out for clubs that you never in your wildest dreams thought you would care about any, any like we went through it for 18 months with Partick Thistle or whatever yeah. it was, right? Yeah. When Gaz was the manager of Partick Thistle. And, and it's like, Chesterfield. And yeah. Chesterfield. I've never looked for a Partick Thistle result up until then or since then. But now I'm like an avid Newcastle Jets follower, <laughs> like waking up in the morning, seeing what the scoreline was. It's just, it's weird how you, you all of a sudden get an affinity with clubs around the world. Yeah, it is. it's crazy, isn't it? And, you know, credit to Robbo because it was a brave decision to go there and, um, well, it's still early days. There's a long way to go, but he's shown his, his quality so far. He's getting results, and, and that's what he does better than most, KJ. It's that ability to get results that I, I think like distinguishes Robbo. It's, it's it's pretty special gift to have. And, you know, the goalkeeper story is a little thing. He's on 249, but this is how Robbo builds that culture and builds that spirit and, and has successful teams because he, he makes gestures like that. He's brave enough to do it and take the flack if it goes wrong. 
and to allow the guy his moment. And, and for me, he's, uh, he's again proven he's, he's, he's quite an outstanding manager and he's got a long future in the game. Yeah, the other thing I'd say is we didn't get much time to talk to him here, but I didn't want to get too detailed into it. But I think Australia is a really fascinating thing. It's, you know, having been there and having known people who live there, you know, they are universally overachievers in every sport they play. And it's the mindset that they have, the mindset at the top level of sport. And speaking to him here a little bit as well since he's come back, that's the stories that Carl has spoken about with players. And, you know, there's, a not, there's no time for, for, for BS. There's no time for excuses. And, you know, when you're a professional, you know this better than anybody, Steve. You can talk about this more than anything. You can go to a level if you want, and you can have a decent career, and you can stay at that level all you want, and you can moan when the, when the, the, the levels of fitness around you are not necessarily great. You can moan about the conditions. You can moan about the weather or what the team is feeding you or the travel. Or you can just get on with it. And you can raise your level and keep raising your level and keep raising your level. And that's what Australians traditionally do in sport because that's what it is. It is a no BS kind of culture. It's direct. It's honest. It's not passive aggressive nonsense like you see sometimes in North America. It's what you see is what you get. And that's why a lot of the athletes are exactly who they are in in Australia. They're getting more out of themselves every single day because that's what Carl has done. That's what you've done as a career. And there's a lot of other people who reach this level of professional athlete, uh, athlete in any sport that don't. And they just yeah. settle. And then the rest of the time is, is, is a different environment. And sometimes they create an environment around themselves where things fall apart and it's everybody else's fault. When really, it's probably just the common denominator, which is themselves. Yeah, I think to me, it's less talking, more doing that kind of mentality. That's why the Aussies are are good at what they do. They get on with it. They, they, they take the flack, they give the stick, but they take it as well. They're, they're pretty honest people. And I know speaking to, to Robbo, he's mentioned that so far. These guys are, you know, they want to roll the sleeves up and get on with their job. And, and Robbo always says his little quote is, you can't kid a kidder. You know, you can, you can pretend for so long, guys, but you get found out in the end. And, you know, as long as you stay in the, 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 the reality, the middle is that, you know, you're somewhere in the middle always. You're, you're never the best, and you're never the worst. And you try and keep this, this kind of middle ground when you're, you're, you're trying to create a, a, a culture within a team or coach a team or win games. And Robbo does that really well. Um, I think he's one of the best at, at having that middle ground, at, at keeping these guys on course and, you know, not making the slightest thing into a big drama and also picking up on when a team's becoming complacent. And again, I, I think that's his biggest strength. He's a man manager and he gets results. And he, he's went there and he's got a long way to go, but he started it off really well. And I think that, um, well, I hope that we see him back on, on our shores where we're living one day in North America because I think he's got a lot to give the world of coaching and, and I would like to see him back in MLS one day. We've got about 10 minutes left, so let's get back to some, uh, some questions here. And the one we talked about from Irving before, um, KJ, we talked with John Herdman this week in the, on the TSN show that we did um, for your uh, – we were recording an interview with him this week about a few things, but also for the, the, the top 10 Canadian players that we're, we're playing on Thursday. Um, the question from Irving is, do you think CONCACAF will revamp the process for a spot in the hex? I hadn't really given it much thought until John answered – that question that we were talking to him about how, how is Canada's path forward now to try and qualify for 2022? And I got the impression that may, maybe I was just reading into his answer, but he seems to, 
I came away from it thinking that CONCACAF might just change this thing completely and just have something maybe completely different to try and try and move forward and pick who goes to the World Cup in 2022. Now that obviously Canada hasn't had as many opportunities to try and get into that hex and they might have to go 7 through 35 under the new format, might be CONCACAF just, just, just something else altogether. Well, they might. This is the thing is, again, we're back to we're not sure. I've actually spoke to Victor Montagliani about this and about a few other things in terms of the CONCACAF Champions League as well with the impact being involved. The thing is, guys, that nobody knows. And look, of course, that is on the table because this thing could go and go and go. And we could be talking in October still. And let's touch wood and hope that it's not the case, that no games have been played. And then they're going to have to do something because there's not enough international windows to get all these games in. Ultimately, here's what CONCACAF have to do. They have to come up with a fair formula for 35 teams to give them a chance to say that they are given an opportunity to qualify. And I think John's point to, you, to, to our interview, to the one that we did with you online that is available on the TSN Soccer Twitter and now available on tsn.ca is fair. Ultimately, it's three scenarios, is it not? It's as is, which is, you know, outside hex looking in, 7 to 35, the other competition. It's add more games, give them a chance to continue to boost their ranking and try and get in that hex. Or it's something completely different. And right now it's three balls in the air. We don't know when they're going to land. So... Uh, look, as I said, none of this, no, no one knows how long this is going on. If I would say to, to guess, if games start coming back and we start playing by summer, then I would probably imagine that the most likelihood would be that the situation would be the same. The games are seven to 35 and Canada's over there and hex they're over here, but we don't know right now, Stevie, what the situation is until we get clarity. I don't think even people in the governing bodies know. Yeah, I'm I'm sure they're talking about it and they're, they're yeah. trying to work out a scenario, yeah. but they don't know because we don't know the date. So the big thing is if if and I would imagine it's seriously compromised. But if the June window doesn't happen as well uh, for international teams, then all of a sudden Canada have missed two windows, four games, a number of points, trying to catch Curacao, who you know are we've already shortened the gap and we're trying to get all the way there. There has to be a fairness in this, and you know, I'm 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 taking off my Canada assistant coach hat at the moment. I'm, I'm I'm talking as an analyst. There has to be a fairness there, and so Concacaf need to look at that that system and decide that it's been far too compromised the way that they had it. That, that someone else needs to come up and they need to get creative because I, I think it would be extremely unfair to that team, and unfortunately for for everyone that loves football in this country, it's Canada that team in seventh who are looking in and who haven't been given the ample opportunity to make up the gap. So uh, my opinion is, and this is solely my opinion, that they would reassess the hex. There may be more teams in the hex. And I know that doesn't make sense, but some other tournament <laughs> where there's more teams uh, and they're playing against each other uh, because you've took away windows or this, this virus has taken away windows. It needs to be changed, but we all know Conky Calf don't always work in the most logistical way. At the end of no, the day, although, although the top six is the top six because of previous performance up, up to this point, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But you're, you're pushing towards, you, you know, you have an end date in mind, which is sometime after the June. So you're squeezing in these games, you've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to you know, bridge this gap to, to play matches that, that mean something, and then I get it. It's it's uh, you know a sort of global disaster, a pandemic that's came along. So 
nobody could foresee it. But to me, when you're taking away someone's opportunity to, to qualify fairly for a competition, then you, you need to readjust it. You need to come up with a different format. Now, maybe that's going to be too difficult to do because, because I don't know how many windows that we're going to get between now and the 2022 World Cup. So maybe that will be too difficult to do. But like I say, I'm sure they're in a room right now. Vic's a great leader. They'll be trying to come up with a way that's fair for everybody and try and come up with a situation that's irrelevant to Canada being in seventh. Whoever's in seventh and eighth have a, a fairness to it, KJ, that they might actually uh, you know, get into a, to a level of qualifying that they, they hope to be in. Yeah, I don't want to say much more. I want to get to some of the last questions. I just say, I mean, at the end of the day, we don't know. But UEFA have got 54 associations to try and fit in. So if CONCACAF can try and fit in, and, and they're not doing a hex, so maybe they can go to a, a UEFA style where they just do a bunch of groups, 10 groups, or, you know, I don't know, you know, off, off the top of my head, you know, nine groups, you know, that, something like that, where you can get nine groups of four or something, and, yeah. and you figure out a way of getting it down to a tournament where you can get, into, you know, through, you know, four or five way in the playoff or something. But uh, look, at, at the moment, uh, who knows? Uh, Mark asks, is there any chance Sebastian Jovinko will come back to Major League Soccer? Um, I know that it's a rumor that keeps on, on going. It's, there was a piece Steve Buffery did with some quotes from um, uh, Jovinko in an Italian interview talking about he might want to go back to, to Italy to finish his career and give it one last chance of trying to, to get back in the Italian national team setup. But um, I mean, his name keeps coming up, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's often going to keep coming up because he left Major League Soccer when he wasn't completely convinced that he wanted to leave. I remember Stevie and I on our podcast, the day he left, said we expected him to come back. I still expected him to come back. I wouldn't be surprised to see him back again uh, playing for TFC some point. Um, ultimately, he loves Toronto. And I also heard, obviously, the numbers weren't there financially, but Mr. Bezbachenko in Columbus certainly put a phone call in as well and would, would have liked him to play for them. So, uh, yeah, there's... Uh, Look, watch this space. I would never be surprised to see him back again. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked myself. Uh, we, we've said it in podcasts before, KJ, that we know his heart's here. He would, he would like to come back. I think Toronto would certainly be his first destination. But at some point, um, I could see him come back playing for either Toronto or another team in MLS. It, it, the, the big thing is financial. He's going to have to say uh, you know, no to a whole lot of money because I don't think he's going to get paid anything like he's been paid in Saudi Arabia. No. So it comes down to money. How much does he want this? Does he want the quality of life for you know his family? And does he feel like this is the best place for them to grow up? Does does he um, does he give up a whole lot of money? That'll that'll be the key for him. And um, but keep keep your eye on this one because. I don't think he's loving his football over there. It, it, it seems like the rumours keep coming. I'm sure it comes from his camp. And I could see him on the move from there in the next, what, six months, not even. Uh, are you going to practice any more skills tonight, Stevie? I was just looking on your Instagram stories. And this one um, this one from today where you're, yeah, you're doing the kick-ups and then bounce, bounce it on your head? Yeah, a little bit of seal like, work. Yeah, look, you want to try that one? You're That's him. Oh, I, did, I, did, I can do it for longer than that. I usually kiss the ball, but too many germs these days, so I just kept it on my head, KJ. That's impressive, mate. Decent, That's eh? Impressive. Look, I got a wee bit Oh, dizzy. a bit of a wobble at the end there. I've, I've, good. It was like I was drunk at the end. Were you inspired by Rohan Ricketts? I thought yeah, you yeah. wrote that at the bottom. Is that what it said? 
Ricketts has been coming up with all these challenges, so I had okay. to kind of give him one of my own. He was calling me out in a few. I tell you, anybody that's not seen some of Rohan's challenges, go and have a he's, look on his Instagram. Is he in Canada? Is he still in Canada? Yeah, he yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's in his, uh, his soccer camps, does a little bit of work with the Oakville Blue Devils, but does some great work with the kids. He's he's fantastic coach. Kids love him. Very demanding, uh, but great guy. Such great a energy. fantastic guy. I loved working with him when... I can't even remember what the year would be that he was at TFC, but I was I was working for the club 08 to 2010 and doing some online video stuff. And he would he had his own web series called Rolling with Ricketts. Yeah, oh yeah, I and, remember it. Yeah, it was yeah. Rolling it with was, Ricketts, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The outtakes were fa- were even better, but he uh, he put some really good stuff together. He was uh, he was he was great. Yeah, you want to, you want to, ever going to get Rohan Ricketts fired up? Talk to him and tell him like how great teams like Atletico Madrid are. Honestly, like he used to come to us, he used to come to the Footy Show radio station and on Sirius. We used to have him on when I was at the score, and he could not get his head over why anybody would play the way that someone like that did. Like, it doesn't matter who it was. Like, it, like he loved it. He loved Arsenal, and then obviously Tottenham and Pochettino. Anybody who played anti-football, he just <laughs> couldn't get his head around it at all. He hates them. So just wind him up or anything like that because he like, he's a great lad. He's got a massive heart, a lovely bloke. Well, we better let you go, Stevie, so you can practice some more kick-ups. How, how many did you get to with the toilet roll? What was your record with that? I got to 10. My last one was a tackle, but I got to 10. <laughs> I got the last one in. I think 10 was a challenge, wasn't it? Yeah. I love some of these challenges. I'll come up with another one tomorrow. I don't know if it can be a skill. Maybe it would be a tackle or something like that, KG. I'll tackle one of the kids and see if I can injure them or something. Yeah, just hey, go, did just go did like you this. answer the one that was going around with um, top four players that impacted? It was top four yes. players that impacted your love of the game or something like that. Did you do that one, Stevie? I did it. My players were Paul McStay, Celtic. What a player. I watched him when I was a kid. John Collins, Celtic. Magnificent player. Uh, went on to play for Monaco and Everton and Fulham. Um, oh, I'm forgetting my third one. Uh, my fourth one was Paul Gascoigne, Lazio. Because uh, I was naming their clubs, Casey. I felt it was important to name what club it was, what moment of their career that, that made oh. them so important to you. So we, we all watched Gazetta Football Italia in the UK. Oh, you're going to make me cry, mate. It's amazing. When Gaza went to Lazio, wasn't it? You're going to make me cry. I, honestly, like, you guys can go, and I'll just talk to everybody else about 1990s football for the next hour. This is, this is just been my life for the last two weeks. Just anything 1990s football, I'm just deep diving into YouTube or books behind me or videos. It's just like I found Des Lynam. Do you remember the end of the 1998 World Cup when Des Lynam narrated a poem to the montage of the 98? Do you remember this at the end of yeah. the 1998? It's on YouTube. I've got to send you the link. Honestly, I'll bring a tear to your eye. Boys. You cried. Won't oh, bring a tear in my eye. I was pleased. I was cheating. <laughs> Come on, England, no, it's not about England losing. It's just about yeah, how, like, how, like it's nothing to England. do with it. Nothing to do with it, mate. England for you guys. Nah. In England, in England, they're going to reshow the whole of Euro '96. I just wish I could see that because that was that that was the best tournament for me. Lived that it. Was just like don't need to see it again. Lived it already. <laughs> it was it was so good. Uh, it was yeah, special. Yeah. I've got a you big envelope. Your... I've got a massive envelope here called Euro '96 with almost every newspaper or magazine tickets to the games that I went to. Uh, we'll have to pull that out one week because just some special stuff there. A Euro '96 well. deep dive, KJ. I think Euro '96 deep dive. Let's do it. The Czech Republic, who made it all the way to the final, 
their base was in Preston, my hometown. No way. Yeah. So they, ba- they were based in Preston. Where, so we went to see them and we were like, hanging out. My brother got Carol Poborski's shirt. It was class. Yeah. It was, it was... We, we should do like a, uh, a memorabilia episode sometime. We should. Because you must, have, you must have, I mean, you must have swapped some shirts, Stevie. You must have got loads of stuff, KJ. Yeah, I got some stuff. I'm not as much as good a stuff as, as I would imagine Stevie does, but I got some uh, old sticker albums and magazines and everything behind me. I you know what? Wait, wait there, because one second. <laughs> He's going <laughs> to get me. back yeah. I gotta get Sheffield no. United. I got to get something. Oh, listen. I got to get something now. Pile of my old jerseys that like oh, I had as a kid that yeah. my mom and dad sent over. This was the one the Blades wore when they got promoted to the uh, to the Premier League in eighty or Division One in eighteen and ninety. But when I when I left Sheffield, see I don't, I can't pay I, I I can't be bothered to pay for framing of jerseys and stuff because it's ridiculously expensive. I've just got mine on hangers right on the walls because <laughs> I'm cheap Yorkshireman. But when I left Sheffield, Radio Sheffield, they gave me a Wednesday and a, a Blades signed jerseys. So this was the this was the jersey at the time, the Blades, right? Wow. They signed it. This would have been 06, 07. There's a huge gap in the middle of the jersey here. Yeah. The reason being that an, uh, the manager at the time was Neil Warnock. <laughs> he would find the players if anyone signed in the middle of a jersey on a signed shirt because he was the only person that was allowed to have the prime position signed on the jersey. He never actually signed my jersey, but that's why it's empty because of Neil Warnock. That sounds like Colin. He would make the players sign below and he would have the, the, the prime spot on the top. So why didn't he sign it? Is it because he knew it was yours? No, I, I, well, I presume he was too busy. Or maybe he didn't need anything that day, so he didn't have to sign from me. So, you know, he, he could be, he was great sometimes, Neil, and then sometimes he wasn't. Memorabilia show, I love it. I got I have um, to pull out a bunch of stuff. We, we, there's just one more thing we need to do before we finish. You only mentioned three, Stevie, of your four. I've got them here. Do you, do you know who the other one was? Was it Roy Keane, Manchester United? No, it was Manchester United, but it was Ryan Giggs. Giggsy. Yeah, I had to choose a Man U guy because he was so important. I was thinking Keane, but then I realised how big a prick he was when he was my manager. So I went with, with Ryan Giggs. <laughs> Major influence on me as a kid and uh, and what was possible, I think, KJ. Even although he was, his skill was beyond the realms of possibility. He's sort of background and character. Yeah. Made everybody, I think, the UK think, I can be that. I can do that if I work hard enough. It's amazing. Yeah. Last one. Last one, because we're deep into Fergie time. Um, Mark asks, uh, best Euro or World Cup ever? Well, the, the, only, the only correct answer to this is Euro 96 and Italia 90. <laughs> they are the best Euro and the, be- the best World Cup. And, and the, well, although the last... Sure. The last the best one was pretty good, sitting so next to you guys. They're nowhere near the best, but it, look, it's your World Cup and your Euro that's special to you. And yeah. Italian 90 will always be, much like Luke's, will always be my World Cup. I remember 86. I remember being in my grandparents' house when I was eight, watching the World Cup final. I remember a few moments, the way that Denmark played was always exciting. But Italian 90, it was dismal it was boring it was dreadful <laughs> it was magnificent yeah but, but Pavarotti it Pavarotti it was Pavarotti it was Platt it was penalties and so much more that it will always be a, as a 12 year old the greatest thing ever and Euro 96 because it was in our country and uh you know ultimately 
I went to some games as a fan. Uh, it was right on, the, right on the borderline of me becoming a broadcast or slash journalist and being a fan. So it was right before I could really come over there. And so that was pretty special for me as well. Um, so, yeah, they'll be mine. It's not the greatest tournaments ever in terms of overall play. But, um, yeah, they'll be mine, Stevie. It's just about your age, isn't it? Yeah, it's about your age and, and, and the moments that you can remember, the, the feelings. That's what it's all about, isn't it? I yeah, think yeah. that I can remember watching a game in 86, Mexico 86. It was, I think it was a Scotland-Uruguay game, the last game we drew 0-0. You got a man sent off so early. I was in Corfu with my family, with my dad, and it must have been 11, midnight. God knows what time, but we were trying to find a bar to watch the game. And I can vaguely remember that was five, almost six years old. So it's these little special moments. But yeah, I, I loved Italia 90. I really loved USA 94. I'm a little bit younger than you guys. So I feel like USA 94 was my World Cup. I remember trying to stay up for every game and, you know, falling asleep, waking it up to that sound. Yeah, I remember that. The telly was just blank and wondering what the score was, trying to get on CPAX to see what the score was of the game that I fell asleep during. Yeah, I remember them. I remember that I fell asleep during the Sweden-Brazil semi-final. Oh, it was boring, wasn't it? Oh, so late, so A late. A moment of brilliance from Romario. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the legend Joe Del Busso is with us uh, oh, watching tonight. Um, he said the best World Cup is the 2006 World Cup for some strange oh, reason. No uh, and he also asks, when do you see Huddersfield back in the Premier League? Which the answer is probably never. Um, <laughs> although, although Huddersfield back in the Premier League sooner than Italy win the World Cup, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good note to finish it on. Uh, thanks, boys. And thanks to Robbo as well. It was great to see him and to producer Miguel Herrera and to everybody who was, uh, was with us. Yeah, thanks for everybody. Uh, nice we'll, ho we'll hopefully join you next week. And we might have a special next week. I'm trying to get a lot of other people to come in as well where we'll do a little bit of a fantasy draft. So keep an eye on that as well. But thanks for everybody for your questions and uh, enjoy your week and stay healthy, everybody. Cheers, Cheers everyone. Bye.